Good morning. Wow, we did it. That wasn't that bad, was it? If you need a refill, you can go get a refill. It's okay. <laughs> uh, somewhat of a weird introduction this morning. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. I love that. I love that's Paul's description of what it is to be a Christian. And it, it reminds me that, that some come this morning elated. Some are excited about impending weddings, daughters being married off. Some have pregnancies and babies getting ready to be born. And, and, some, are, and some are really struggling. Sorrowful yet always rejoicing. What a beautiful description of what it is to be a Christian. That in the midst of a broken world, in the midst of of, of pain and, and suffering and setbacks and disappointments, we can still rejoice. We can still rejoice because Jesus Christ has overcome the world. And all of God's promises to us are yes and amen. I was thinking about Psalm 122 this morning from about 5 a.m. to about 8 a.m., which says, I was glad when they said to me, let us ascend the hill and go worship the Lord. To be in corporate worship with the people of God, to sing his praises, to sing and extol his excellencies, what a joy and a privilege. I was glad when they said to me, let us go and worship the Lord. You know the weird thing about, if you're a guest, this might not make any sense to you, but The weird thing about being despondent or being depressed is that you don't feel what you know. You don't feel what you know. You know that God is on the throne. You know that Jesus Christ has overcome the world, and you don't always feel it. Okay, that's a weird introduction. But do you ever feel like you say the same thing over and over again? If you got kids, or if you have employees, or you have dogs, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Okay, so we uh, we have we have a we have a pool. We've arrived. (laughs) It's 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 half full and dirty right now, so don't get too jealous. But there's something that we say to the kids all the time, every day, multiple times, all summer long. Don't run by the pool. I don't know how many times we have to say it, but we say it again. And I don't even actually know for sure why we say it. <laughs> I, I think it's just something you're supposed to say. Don't run by the pool. But I, I, there's another thing that we say again and again and again and again. Uh, in, our, in our house, on the, in the, on the upstairs, in the hallway... 
There's our bedroom, the boys' bedroom, and where the twins sleep. And for whatever reason, between the hours of two and four, the kids feel like that hallway is the place that they should play and yell and, and, and play tag and, and so on and so forth. And it's like, why in the world would you choose this time of day to wake up your sisters who just fell asleep? These twin baby girls need rest. They've been crying. And you choose these two hours in this part of the day to, to, to play right here. So the other thing I feel like we say is, go play downstairs. And we say it again and again and again. Okay, so why do I bring this up? Because in the passage just before you, in the passage that was just read to you, Matthew 25, 31 through the end, Jesus is going to say the same thing a third time. Okay? Matthew 24 was about Jesus is coming back. Matthew 25 is about therefore be ready. And he's taught it in three different parables. So I now have to stand up here a third time and say the same thing again. But the Lord Jesus thought it was important. The Lord Jesus thought it was so important that in his last set of teachings, he told us three different times to be ready for his imminent return. He told it in the parable of the ten bridesmaids. He told it last week in the parable of the talents. And he tells it today in the teaching of the sheep and the goats. To be ready for his imminent return. If you look at the passage before you, again, Matthew 25, 31 through the end, I see it in three sections. In verses 31 through 33, you see the context of the final judgment, which Jesus is is set up for us. In verses 34 through 40, you'll see Jesus' account of what he's going to say to the people on the last day, and you'll see what he's going to say to his own people on the last day, and you also see what they're going to say back to him after he says what he's going to say to them. And then in verses 41 to the end of the chapter, you're going to see what Jesus is going to say to those who either claim to be his disciples, but not truly were, or those who never claimed to be his disciples at all. So I see it broken up in three different sections, but I'm actually going to preach it in two. I see it broken up in three different sections, but I'm going to preach it in two. So point one will be the final judgment, which is verses 31 to 33. And point two will be the results of that final judgment in verses 34 to 46. Read again with me, 31 to 33. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats will be on his left. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your help now as we open your word. We pray that you reveal it to us by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we pray that Jesus Christ would be supremely valuable to us as a result. In Jesus' name, amen. We must examine ourselves to see if we are in the faith. We must. That's the point of Matthew chapter 25. And Jesus presses it into us three different times, as we've said. We must ask ourselves, and I must ask you now, are you trusting in Jesus now? Is Jesus your only hope? 
Is Jesus Christ your only plea? Because if there's any point to Matthew 25, it is this. There is coming a day when it will be too late. It will be too late to turn in faith and trust to him. It will be too late to repent of your sin. It will be too late to find the forgiveness that he offers you. It will be too late to avoid the wrath of God. Because on that last day, verses 31 to 33, he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. He's going to put one on his left, and he's going to put the other on his right. He's going to separate them. He's going to come with a dividing sword. He's going to come with a decisive act. There's, There's no gray area. There's no middle area in verses 31 to 33. There's left and right. There's not center. There's not slightly off of center. There's not slightly to the right. There is left and there's right. There's 180 degrees difference between these two. He will separate the sheep from the goats. He will put one on one side and he will put one on the other. There is coming a day when it will be too late. Jesus Christ is setting himself up in this context, in this text, to be the final judge. Which means that today is the day to turn in faith and trust to him. To repent of your sin, to lay down your rebellion and find the free grace and forgiveness that he offers. That was the moral of the story two weeks ago with the ten bridesmaids, that the day is coming. That's what it was last week, to not be the one who just goes and buries everything in the backyard and thumbs your nose at God. Because when Jesus comes, and he is coming, he's coming back for us. But when he comes back, that day is too late. That day is too late. We must be prepared Now, now is the day of salvation. If you hear his voice, if there is even a faint voice in your mind, in your heart now, that is the work of God. That is a rejoicing matter. If there is even the slightest, faintest voice and the desire to turn to Jesus, that's Jesus doing the work in your life and heart right now through the preaching of his word. He's calling you now to turn to him in faith and trust. That's what it is to be a Christian. What it is to be a Christian is that even in the moments of despondency, even in the moments when it's just a faint voice, it's still a voice. And that is the Spirit of God. That is the Holy Spirit working in and through you. Jesus says in John chapter 3 that you can't even see the kingdom of heaven unless you've been born again. Or quite literally in the Greek, you've been born from above. Which means that if you have sensed it and you do sense it now, praise God. Because that's God working in your life and heart in this very moment. Look at again verses 31 to 33. In this passage... He teaches us that when he comes again, he will not come as a humble and humiliated Savior. He won't come as a humble and humiliated Savior, but he will come and he will judge us all. 
He will judge the world. He will judge every single one of us. He's not coming back as the humble and humiliated Savior. He's coming back, as we will see in the book of Revelation, he's coming back as a king on his war horse. He's coming back, as it says in Revelation, with a tattoo on his leg that says, King of kings and Lord of lords. He's not the humble and humiliated Savior when he comes back. He's the righteous judge of the world. He's the righteous king of the world who's going to set everything right. And if we're absolutely honest with ourselves, if Jesus Christ is going to set everything right, it means that he has to set us right. It's been rightly said that the problem in the world resides in our own hearts. The reason that there's war, the reason that there's calamity, the reason that there are broken relationships, mistreated children, mistreated women, the Me Too movement, etc., is because of a problem and a chaos that exists in our own hearts. And if Jesus Christ is going to come back and he's going to set the world right, then he needs to come back and he needs to deal with you and me. And there's only two options. We are either found in him, and he has paid the penalty for our sin, or we're going to be judged. That's the point of verses 31 and 33. He's going to put him on his right. No, that's my left. He's going to put him on his left. It's your right. And he's going to put him on the other side. He separates the righteous from the unrighteous. His actual judgment. I am the king of the universe. In that last day, I'm going to judge heaven and earth. I'm going to judge the world. And the opportunity, the day of preparation, is today. That last day is coming. And the other point of Matthew chapter 25 is that no one expects it when it comes. No one expects it when it comes. The ten bridesmaids didn't expect it when it came. The day is coming on a day that you won't expect. Last week we had flowers behind me for James Bridges who passed away. In January, Dave Toman at Western Seminary, 49 years old, died. Dead on the gym floor. It comes when you don't expect it. Today is the day of preparation. And Jesus Christ, when he comes that second time, he will come as judge. He won't come as that humiliated and humble Savior. He will come as the righteous King and judge of the universe. And that's point one. The final judgment. Point two, the results of the judgment. Uh, And here I I, want to make two points. I want to make two... So I guess I could have made it a three-point sermon. Uh, As we've said the last two weeks, this section here that Jesus is giving us is not works righteousness. Works salvation. It's not. This is not Jesus saying the way you're saved is that you do X, Y, and Z. This is the gracious king who comes to give and give and give and give more. The parable of the talents last week is all about the king who desires to give and give abundantly more, right? And when 
the, the master comes back in the parable of talents, he delights to, to give again, to give more, to, 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 to give as, as, as a reward, to give even more abundantly than they had initially received. It is not a passage. Matthew 25, all three parables are not messages about works, uh, salvation by works. What this parable about is about, the sheep and the goats, is what people look like who have been saved. He's just, he's just giving you a litmus test. He's not saying the way that you can enter the kingdom of heaven is go, by going and visiting people in jail. That's not what he's saying. I remember at, at Multnomah, when I was a, an undergrad, I actually heard someone come to campus at chapel, read this passage, and say, so if you expect to get to heaven, you better start doing social justice issues. I mean, that's, 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 that's wicked. That's wrong. The way that you are accepted by Jesus is by his free grace and love to you, by repenting of your sin, saying there's nothing in myself that Jesus saw as valuable except he sought to set his love on me. That's what it is to be a Christian, that Jesus Christ, out of his own free will, put his love and affection on you. With that said, this passage is talking about the fruit, the outworking, the result of someone who actually has been converted. And he says a couple things. One is this is that we're drawn to show mercy to some people because they're Christians. We are drawn to show mercy to people because they are Christians. The other, that we are drawn to show mercy to people because they're not Christians. We are drawn to show mercy to Christians because we see Jesus in them And we are drawn to show mercy to people who aren't Christians or unbelievers because we want to see Jesus in them. We help suffering believers. We help suffering Christians. We help our suffering brothers and sisters in Christ, even in this room, because they bear the name of Jesus Christ. Because they have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. And, in turn, we help suffering unbelievers in the hope with the aim, with the desire that they will come to bear the name of Jesus Christ. It's been said that um, if we serve the, the, the watching world, if we serve the homeless, the poor, the orphan, the widow, the needy, because we have an agenda of them becoming Christians, therefore we've done it from the wrong motive, that's wrong. That's not true. We certainly serve the world around us. The, 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 the biggest tragedy, the most awful human condition of suffering is that people are going to hell. The biggest problem in the world isn't that uh, there are widows or there are orphans or there are homeless people. The greatest problem in the world is that people are going to hell. So certainly, when we go alleviate 
on some level, some kind of suffering, whether it be homelessness, whether it be uh, children without parents, etc. We are doing it with the aim that these people will come to know Jesus Christ. If we didn't do it with that aim, we would be unloving, wicked servants. Galatians 6.10 puts it like this. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. The especially there is the added delight of affirming in them what God has already done in saving them. It's, it's, it's delighting in affirming what God has already done in saving them. Look, we are finite people. We have, we, we have to have a list of priorities, right? Paul will tell us in the pastoral epistles that someone who doesn't care for his own family is worse than an unbeliever. And in the context, he's not just talking about his immediate nuclear family. He's talking about uh, his wider extended family. He's talking about his oikos, which would be those that are within this person's control and purview. And the Bible does give us, it does give us a hierarchy of responsibility. Our first responsibility, by way of application, your first responsibility, brothers, men, is to your wife and your kids. It's your first responsibility. It's not wrong to care for your wife and kids before caring for somebody else's wife and kids. You're a finite human. You don't have infinite resources and infinite time and money, and etc. You have finite resources. Your first responsibility is to care for your wife and your kids. And then you have a responsibility beyond that to even care for those who are within your relational oikos, is the Greek word, your household. Uh, your, your, your brother, your sister-in-law, your nephews, your nieces, your cousins. And you have a responsibility to care for those that are sitting to your right and your left. You have a responsibility, Galatians 6.10, to care especially for the household of God. We can't care for every Christian in this city. It's like God has put us in his wise providence into local churches, right? We, we do have a responsibility to care for those around us so that we see that there's not even a needy one among us. There's not even a needy one among us. I, I can't ensure that there's not a needy one in a church 10 miles down the road. But, 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 I, but I can bear the burdens, and we can bear the burdens of one another sitting to our right and to our left. We can care for the needy ones to our right and to our left. And that's our responsibility. That is what it means, especially to the household of faith. What's the difference between these two groups? The difference Jesus focuses on how they treated his brothers, and I take his brothers to be his disciples. Verse 35, I was hungry you gave me food. I was thirsty. You gave me drink. I was a stranger. You welcomed me. 36. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then in verse 40, Jesus explains how they were helping actually him. Verse 40. And the king will answer them, truly, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. His brothers are his disciples. This is not 
everybody. This is not every suffering person. Jesus does not call his enemies his brothers. If you remember earlier in Matthew 12, 49 to 50, and stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. He calls his disciples his brothers. So what Jesus says in Matthew 25, 40, is that doing these kinds of ministries of mercy to the least of these, namely to his brothers, we are doing it to him. He means that as we do it to Jesus' own disciples, we are doing it to him. You remember Paul on the road to, uh, on the Damascus road, when, 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 when Jesus spoke to him, he said, why are you persecuting me. Jesus so tightly connects himself and to his to his to his people that he can even say to Paul, "Why are you persecuting me?" That's what he's saying here. That when you serve a brother and sister in Christ, when you serve somebody sitting to your left or to your right or in front of you or behind you in this church, you're serving Jesus himself. That's how closely Jesus connects himself to his people. And that should be of great encouragement to us. It should be of great encouragement to us. That, that kind of ontological, mystical reality of us being in Christ, my life is hid with Christ in God, that the apostles would talk about it, kind of, even Jesus would talk about it, kind of in such a mystery that we're, we're part of him. You're part of him. You are his body in some kind of literal way. I can't explain it. But you're part of him in some kind of literal way that he can even say on the Damascus Road, why are you persecuting me? And he can even say in our text this morning that if you serve someone else, you serve a disciple, you're serving me. I'll just say in brief here. Does that mean that we should not serve unbelievers to get our mercy? Of course not. Jesus was very strong in this matter. He said, if we only love those who love us, if we only do good to those who do good to us, then we're no different than unbelievers, he'll tell us. So yes, we need to show mercy, even preferential mercy, to our brothers and sisters in Jesus in this church when they suffer. That's what, that's what good families do. If the church is the, the, the household of faith, as Paul says in Galatians 6.10, or in 1 Timothy 3.15, that it's the pillar and buttress of the truth, that the family of God, families show preference to their families first. That's right and good. Dads love their kids more than they love other kids. That's okay. That's what families do. But if we love only our family, if we only sacrifice to relieve the suffering of our family, then... We're no better than an unbeliever. Luke 6, 27. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. And as you wish that others would do to you, do to them. If you love those who only love you, what benefit is it to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. But love your enemies. Do good, 
lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be the sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, he says, even as your heavenly Father is merciful. So let me draw us to a close. Hebrews 9.17 As we come to the end of Matthew chapter 25 Jesus has now told us in his final words three different times to be ready to be prepared and Hebrews 9.17 says it is appointed unto man once to die and then comes judgment. The Apostles' Creed says that Jesus ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and from there he will come to judge the living and the dead. So Jesus is giving us a litmus test in this text. If we're a true church, if we're disciples of Jesus, then we will be drawn to show mercy to suffering people precisely because they are Christians. And we will be drawn to show mercy to other suffering people because they're not Christians. And we want them to come to see and know Jesus. We will be like our Heavenly Father. This is not salvation by works. It's showing us what people look like who have truly been converted. People that realize that it was Jesus who's the one who was put outside the camp. Jesus was the one who suffered outside. This text says they will, they, will, they, will, they, will, they will be committed and cast into the outer darkness. It was the Lord Jesus who was the one who was put out. He was the one who was put out for our sake, for your sake. He was the one who suffered outside the city, who was humiliated, who suffered under the wrath of God for your sake. And if you've come to him in faith and trust because of the free gift that he offers you, then your life should be marked by caring for your brothers and sisters. Your life would be marked. It's it's a natural outworking. It wouldn't make any sense to us if I said that I, I married Vanessa and then for the last 15 years we haven't lived together, we haven't been together, I haven't cared for her, she hasn't cared for me, etc. We would, we would just naturally say that, that that's not a marriage. And Jesus is saying, if you've been touched by my grace, if you've been touched by my love, if you've received the forgiveness that I've granted you, then this is what your life is marked by. This is what your life is marked by. Augustine said it like this. The one who is ready for the coming of the Lord is not the one who says it's far away. The one who's ready for the coming of the Lord is not the one who says it's near. The one who is ready for the coming of the Lord is the one who lives his life with sincere faith, steadfast hope, and fervent love for his brother. He can change the leper spots make it white as snow. That's one comment that's haunted me since i became a Christian. Before I became a Christian and when I got converted, somebody said to me one time, a leper, a leopard, sorry, it's different. 
A leopard never loses its spots. And that haunted me for a long time. You can't change, Matthew. You can't change. And I told that to a pastor one time. And that pastor said, yeah, don't forget, though, that a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. God can change you through his free grace and mercy through Jesus Christ. Let us rest in it this morning. Pray with me.